Hi guys, welcome to the Name This Book podcast. My name is Pudu and I'm your host here. So thank you so much, especially if it's your first time tuning in. Thank you so much for tuning in. This week's book happens to also be the first book club pick of the year. It is Becoming by Michelle Obama. Can I just say shout out to the book club honeys and uh, we had our first meeting this past week. I am definitely going to be sharing with you guys here on the podcast some of their thoughts and what I picked from our discussion this past Sunday. I really, really, really am so excited to just talk about this amazing book. Um, I've been excited to read this book since um, since I knew she was going to be writing a book. One, two, I lost it when she released the cover art for the book. I think it was last year around April so I've just been like waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting so when we decided to do it as our first book club pick this year I was even more excited to just get into it um so yeah Michelle Obama becoming becoming Michelle Obama that's how I've been reading it becoming Michelle Obama and people have seen me reading it and, and they were like, are you trying to be her? I'm not trying to be her. I'm trying to know about her. I'm trying to learn from her, you know? I'm not trying to be Michelle Obama. Ugh. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, let us get right into the book. So the book is separated into three sections. Becoming me, becoming us, and becoming more. And listen, Michelle... Yeah, Auntie Shell. Auntie Shell can write, okay? She can write. She had the time, she had the words, and she made sure that she used them to the fullest of her ability to put this book together. I really do appreciate that. She took her time with some chapters. Um, and, you know, at points, especially in the first section in Becoming Me, I know a lot of the book club honeys were we're saying that it drags on for like she was just talking and talking and explaining so much especially in the first section and you're like so when are you gonna get to the point this is kind of dragging on i know some of them had to go and um try it on audio and that was just an experience for for every one of us but i really did appreciate that and so in the first section which is becoming me you you learn about her life as Michelle Vaughn Robinson. That's her maiden name. And, you know, she grew up with her mother, Marion, her dad, Fraser, um, and her brother, Craig. But she grew up surrounded by the community of family, you know. She, her whole family was, they were, she grew up knowing her whole family, spending time with them, making trips to visit family that lived far away. She was a little girl or and raised by her family. And you know, she spent time with her maternal grandfather and her paternal grandfather. She called her maternal grandfather Southside because there was a time when he lived in the west side of Chicago and when he moved to the south side of Chicago, she and her brother Craig renamed him Southside and she had her paternal grandfather who... Um, who, yeah, her dad's dad, you know, who lived further down, but they always took the time to, to go and visit him, and she called him Dandy. 
and um you know the story of her grandparents is one that you you appreciate further down the further along the book as you're reading it her grandfathers are part of what was known in american history as the great migration where a lot of black people moved from the south to the northern part of the country of america yeah the south was heavily racist and so they moved to the north for better opportunities where there was an abundance of black people but um companies were looking to hire eastern european immigrants that were coming in and they couldn't exactly get jobs as carpenters as laborers because then they weren't allowed to join unions and not being able to join a union meant that you weren't able to have steady pay and so it just led them into a cycle of getting jobs that would allow them to be able to at least provide for their family that weren't always as stable and so it was it was it was that's when you see how racism literally is a system that is a social and economic system that was built to basically basically sideline people purposely because of their race a lot of black people couldn't get proper paying jobs or even go to school basically because people weren't hiring them you know and they weren't allowed to join unions at the time and so that's the story of her grandparents and how they ended up in jobs where there were troller conductors at the time, train conductors, or working as servicemen, servicemen or basically maintaining boilers, which is what her dad did for most of her life. And, you know, her dad had MS that progressed as she grew up and God went from, you know, he went from being able to walk by himself to using crutches, to using a wheelchair. The disease slowly took over his life. But Michelle went into great detail in the first section of this book. And I, like I said, I really, really did appreciate that because as you, you went further along the book, you got to see why it was necessary for her to lay that foundation when you come back and understand it you know i've already mentioned that she grew up surrounded by her family they made time for family on both sides of the family they had um barbecues they went to visit she knew her cousins both her grandparents you know her aunts and uncles she made the trip down south to visit her dad's family over the school holidays and you know from from a very young age she was very assertive and aware of herself um, early in the book she says you know when i was four years old she decided she was gonna learn how to play piano so she lived with her parents in a house in an apartment above a house where her aunt her great aunt and her uncle lived downstairs and so her aunt used to teach piano to kids and so she used to she grew up listening hearing that and she was she figured you know what it couldn't be that hard so she wanted to learn how to play the piano she learned and she picked it up really quick so she wanted to learn the more difficult songs but her aunt wasn't too keen on that you know and she 
she you know you could yeah she was you could pick up how the the yearning to of wanting to learn you know her mom taught her how to read and write before she sent her off to kindergarten and so she was already a step ahead of her other her other um classmates by the time she went to kindergarten and so she she made a point to talk about how you know in the south side when she first went to school she went to a very the school the school itself was very racially inclusive and so there was it was racially inclusive and so there was a it was a very diverse class that was full of white people black people hispanics and you know all of that and um what happened at that time was that um more white people especially middle class white people started moving from the south side and into the suburbs and by the time she was in the fifth grade half of her whole class was completely was completely made up of black kids and so she mentions how that was named um or called the white flight and so that moving of the white people from the south side into the suburbs had great economic and social impact on their on that area and on funding especially from the school so it became it became it became um I'm trying to put this in a way <laughs> I'm trying to put it in a way that I can explain it properly without having to go into technical terms it was um, racial economic sorting so what happened now was that the school district started pouring less money not necessarily her words but um, it's just basically what I'm um, summarizing from what the way she was putting it um, yeah basically there was less money going into the school the school wasn't doing as well as it had been when the white kids were in the school and so you know it was basically you know as she mentioned she made it to say that white people had left and the school was becoming you know it was becoming blacker the ratings were dropping and you know one of the journalists at the time made it a point to point it out and the principal at the time tried to say no that's not what's happening and there's this amazing thing that she says in for in relation to that situation and she says failure is a feeling long before it becomes a result it's vulnerability that breeds itself with self-doubt and then is escalated often deliberately by fear i think that was just a great way to to describe the whole situation because that was the situation the school wasn't doing as well as it had when it had white kids in them because the district was investing more in them and so it felt like it no longer needed to put as much into the school because it was primarily now made up of black kids you know but her mother wasn't going to take that lying down you know her kids or black kids deserved education just as much as they deserved quality education just as much as white kids and so her mother became involved in pta to move funding to make sure that all the kids got 
the education or at least the resources that they needed to to you know to propel themselves using their education um michelle was fortunate enough to be able to be put into a class of higher achievers where they got they were basically separate from the school but you know they got not necessarily extra attention but there was more focus in their lessons you know because they had they were the smarter kids um you know and then from there she applied to another um excellence school for um you know high school where she got accepted um where she had to take two buses to get to school and um where she also did very very well um at the same time her brother had gone to princeton university which is an ivy league school you know the top of the top schools in the states um i think you have princeton you have harvard you have um what's the other one georgetown if i'm not mistaken um i'm not sure about yeah georgetown i'm not sure about columbia and then there's another one i'm trying i forget harvard yale yeah and yale so yeah no wait i don't think columbia is an ivy league school yeah but i know georgetown is anyway yeah (laughs) anyway so yeah those schools yeah and so you know she says in the book you know she'd always followed in her brother's footsteps so it made sense to her that she was gonna go to princeton and so she was consulting with the guidance counselor at the school and she said um and the guidance counselor basically told her um i don't think you're your princeton material and she just used that woman's negativity to apply and get in to princeton she didn't go back and tell her eh, i got <laughs> i got in i just stuck my tongue out like Cardi B. <laughs> i am so sorry focus okay so she didn't go back and just you know brag that she she got into princeton she didn't owe her that she didn't owe her anything at all at all so she got into princeton you know she um she did her undergrad in sociology at this point i was reading this using my mind because (laughs) i did i was like i was fangirling i i did a double major in uh political science and sociology so i was like ah, oh my gosh i can't believe it. i actually didn't know that she had studied sociology like in my head she probably did like um pre-law or something because i know a lot of american schools require that you do pre-law at undergrad and then you take the lsat and then do do a lawyer i just knew that she was a lawyer i didn't know that she had done her undergrad in sociology so at this point i was really really freaking out well, not freaking out, just losing my mind. Because I was like, ah, I didn't know that. You roll like that, you know? <laughs> yeah. Back to the book, actually. Um, yes, Princeton. So, she points out how Princeton was extremely white and very male. That the men outnumbered the women two to one. And that black students made up, of, made up less than 9% of her freshman class when she first got to Princeton and when I got to this point and I just read those those facts about Princeton 
I realized that being black in America, you are constantly aware of your blackness. Constantly. Like, I just mentioned about, you know, her grandparents. I already talked about her grandparents and how they were racially disadvantaged because of the color of their skin they couldn't get proper jobs and how the school district just started funding their district less because it was made up of more black kids as white people moved out she got to princeton and it was very white very male you are like from a young age they they are black kids in america are basically just aware of their blackness it's like it's like being a woman when you enter a space you are constantly aware or you check to see if you're the only woman in that place you know you enter a comedy and you see you you it's like you're counting to see what your odds are there's nothing scarier than being the only woman in a comedy which I can't you know I'm kind of relating it to race but that's how it relates to me I mean I am black and I am a woman but being black in America is a different it's a whole different issue there's a book on that I will find it probably do a review but I know there's a book on that but anyway I digress I digress Um, So she's at Princeton and you know um, she mentioned how black black kids obviously can you know you come together with the people that you're like you know you move towards the sense of community where it's people you feel you relate the most to not saying that she didn't have any white friends but it just they they communed together because it was what felt familiar to them. And so she mentions uh, how she had a roommate who, so she was put in a dorm with two uh, two white girls. She was the only black girl, and she had one of her roommates who um, moved out in the middle of her in the middle of the semester, and she didn't know why until years later. Obviously, well, I'm guess, I'm guessing she didn't mention. She just said years later, but I'm guessing it was when Barack was running for president or senate. And um, basically, this girl's mom was like, "My daughter is not gonna share a room with a black girl." She tried to justify it. I'm not gonna read the justification because it's racist, so I'm not gonna do that. We don't have time for that here. I know. I'm not gonna do that. Um, but yeah, it's just like, what? And she, and she gave another example about how she had another friend, another black friend, who had been celebrating her birthday. So she invited a whole bunch of other friends to her room, who happened to be black. Okay, who were black? Who were black? And so one of her roommates felt threatened. The dean got involved. They were told not to have people in their room. I was just like, ugh. ugh. You are constantly aware of your blackness and you have to like adjust your blackness to make white people comfortable. We are not in this world. Black people cannot be walking around making white people comfortable. Like I understand, like when you're reading stuff about America, you understand why black people are just tired. 
it is not your space to make white people comfortable it isn't guys like yo i'm already drained like yo (laughs) i'm already drained hey i'm already drained and the thing is i think i have a few books that touch on being black in america i know i said i had i there's one that specifically talks about blackness in america but i'm looking at my bookshelf and there's um the invisible man by ralph ellison i also have malcolm x's autobiography and a whole bunch of other books but i have those two main ones i don't know when i'm gonna read them like i'm already tired just from you know these these what i'm seeing what was what i was seeing from michelle's book that has already drained me about race and racism and just yeah anyway i digress i keep digressing i'm sorry about that but it's just my my thoughts of what i was picking up from the book hey (laughs) what i was picking up from the book um I think I was at where she was talking about her. Oh yeah, yeah, the white girl who said she wasn't feeling comfortable and had people moved and the dean involved and she. Oh yeah, she had a friend named Suzanne, who I will go into when it is a bit more necessary. Okay. Okay. Um, when she finished at Princeton, before she finished at Princeton, she took the LSAT, which is basically the test to take to get into law school, and she got into law school. Um, yeah, she got into law school. She went to a Harvard Law. So by the age of 25, she was done with school. She had finished her law degree. She was a junior associate at a firm in Chicago called... Um, Sydney and Austin. She had an assistant. She was making more money than her parents had ever done. She was wearing Armani suits. She had a monthly wine subscription. Guys, guys, can can people get serious, guys? Like I know I want all of this. I want all of it. You know the making the money, making having the assistant. <laughs> wearing a marnie you know at 25 like hey hi god i'm here i'm ready anyway <laughs> anyway but what i'm most jealous of is the wine subscription that is probably the only thing i can afford here listen i've done my numbers if you listen to my first episode of this podcast you know that i am down with the budget and crunching the numbers i can afford the wine subscription i cannot afford a marnie okay <laughs> i can't afford a marnie but I want the wine subscription. I'm so jealous of the wine subscription. But anyway, she was doing that, hey? She was doing that. She was 25, getting her life, you know, paying her student loans back, buying a car. She was doing that. She was on top of her game, okay? At 25, that's what she had in margin. Just imagine, hey? And... You know, that same time, she was asked to mentor an incoming summer associate, right? And 
she, obviously she agreed and she, this person was a hotshot law student climbing their own ladder went to harvard law school and you won't believe who it was <laughs> i'm joking you already know it was barack obama 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 ashamed okay i'm not i'm lying anyway <laughs> um guys can i just say michelle was not impressed by obama hey she was not impressed um you know she tried to do a little research on him you know it was way back when where you couldn't like get on instagram and you know stalk him or go on facebook and see what he looked like she just looked for a picture, I think, in the summer edition of what they of the catalog that they had at the office. It was a black and white picture. It wasn't all that clear, but she wasn't impressed. The secretaries around the office were talking about, oh, he's so cute. And she was just like, mm. she couldn't be bothered. She was she literally says in the book, she's like, you put a suit on any half intelligent black man, and white people tend to go bonkers. I was like, Michelle, do you know that this is your future husband? Girl, girl. But she was just so authentic with like how she felt. And I think what made it worse was she like at the beginning of the chapter, it, she, she just says Barack Obama was late. He was late for his meeting the very first day. On his first day, he was late, you know. But um, she was... Um, sort of like a mentor to him you know she had to make sure he was comfortable he was happy at the jobs she took him out for dinner obviously on the company's account and um you know they, they they spent a lot of time together they ended up falling into a routine barack would go to her office in the afternoon just to sit and chat and discuss um legal memos and all of that and it was real cute it was real real cute and um listen I would not do justice to the way Michelle described Obama. If I tried, I would not do justice to it because this is she's known this man for so long. They've been together for I think over 25 years. Um, I don't know. They've been they got married in 1992. They've been married for over 25 years. They've been together longer than that. And the way Michelle talks about Obama in this in, in, in becoming is honestly I was in awe most of the time. I was like she was both amazed and and just she was both amazed and appreciative of who he was, you know. You know, I know there's a part where she described him as like a unicorn and she was just, she was willing, she was, she wanted to learn from him and she was learning from him and she didn't think he was real. And the way she just talks about him and his attributes and his personality and who he was and he, who he is as a person, it's, oh, it left me in awe, okay? You could tell that this woman, this is her life partner this is her person this is this is her friend this is 
I think the way she talks about Bark, especially in at the beginning of Becoming Us, and throughout the book, the way she ex- oh, I really wouldn't do it justice if I tried to just say what she was saying about him because there's a way that she did it that both shows her love and respect for this man. It was it is amazing, you know. Um, yeah, they fell into a routine. They would go out for dinner and hang out outside of the office. And they had gone out this one time. And, you know, um, Obama was like, you know, I think we should date. <laughs> and she was like, um, first of all, I told you I don't do that. And um, she says, like, I told you I don't date. And second of all, I'm your advisor. And he was like, like, that means anything. <laughs> Like, that means anything. He was like, plus, you're real cute, you know? So she just brushed him off. And, um, you know, they had been hanging out and stuff like that. And so they went to a company picnic together, you know, moving. Like, you're together, but you're not together, you know? And so she watched him play basketball at this company picnic. And she... I think that was the first time she saw him, hey? That was the first time she saw him. They ditched the little company picnic, went to went to um went to went to catch ice get ice cream. And while they were there at the end of the night, um Barack was like, Can I kiss you? And she was like, Yes. It was oh so cute. I'm just trying to make like 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 changing my voice i'm just like it was just so cute hey don't mind me i'm being a hater but it was it was really really cute like when i read it i was like blushing i was like that's so cute it was really really cute hey they began dating like this is happening over the summer like american summer is in it's like june to august to june to end of august i think if i'm not mistaken may june somewhere there but i know it's three months long so this is all happening over the course of like three months and you know they start dating they spend time together and you know he was due back at harvard um later in the summer you know um and she was she she says this she was so intrigued by him he was very secure openly accompli- uh, openly affectionate gave her compliments and made her feel good he was he was un, unreal he was a unicorn he was unreal unusual to the point that he seemed unreal and he wasn't materialistic he spent most of his money on books insert heart eyes emoji right here okay heart eyes emoji out here it was so pathetically cute i love it you know and he was drawn to the more the bigger ab- abstract i think he still is bigger abstract issues and you know she was constantly intrigued by him you know they were very very different she was by the book hey she had gone to school she used she used um education to propel her in life she went to princeton she went to harvard she got the job she made the money she was set whereas he had a very different upbringing 
he had grown up with his mom. His mom sent him back to America. He grew up with his grandparents. He had a different upbringing, you know? And so there were such polar opposites. Very, very, very polar opposites. And she, you know... And so he was very, very... He, you know, Barack Obama is a writer. He's very, very eloquent. And when it came the time for him to go back to Harvard at the end of the summer, he wa- he wanted to write letters. He had spent years writing letters to his mother who was in Indonesia, and that was a main form of communication. And he was like, listen, I'm not really a phone guy, hey, so let's write letters. And Michelle was like, no. She was like, no. If I'm not talking to you on the phone, I might have to find another guy that'll listen. And Barack Obama became a phone guy. Those are her words. That's literally what he said. Those are her words. He began. He became a phone guy. They spent time on the phone together, talking and stuff like that. When it came to becoming us, it's a memoir. Hey, there were times where I felt like maybe it was too much on the relationship, but it's. Then I came to realize that it was actually part of her story and their story. And yeah, I came to appreciate it. Sometimes there were times where it became like it was too much, but I appreciated why she was taking us through it all. Like I said, it's a long, lengthy book and everything that she was doing and saying in the book, even though it sometimes became annoying for lack of a better word, it was necessary, very necessary in understanding everything that was happening around them, you know? I mentioned her friend, uh, Suzanne. Suzanne was, uh, was a free spirit, you know? She, at some point when Michelle had already settled, you know, in her job, Suzanne was like, you know what, I'm quitting my job. I'm going to travel the world. She went with her mom. They traveled all around the world. She came back a year later. She had been diagnosed with cancer. Her mom had also been diagnosed with cancer. And so, you know, Suzanne died at the age of 26. And it was so heartbreaking for her because to Michelle, that was her best friend, you know. She even says how, you know, we were going to be maids of honor at each other's weddings. Our husbands were going to be friends. They weren't going to get a, they weren't going to be similar, but they were going to get along. They were going to raise their kids together. And unfortunately, she, she lost her friend at a very, very young age. And, you know, at the time, she, she, she came to the realization that, you know what? She's not really happy in the space that she was in. You know, Suzanne, I think Suzanne losing her life at a young age showed her how routine and monotonous her life had become. Save for Barack Obama, but the rest of her life had become very, very routine and monotonous and it wasn't exciting her. It wasn't, it wasn't fulfilling And it was at this point where she decided that, you know, 
she decided that um, she, she 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 didn't decide, but she realized that she hated being aware, and she hated it. She wasn't suited for it, and it felt empty. And but she was also questioning herself because you know she had put so much work into it. You know, she'd spent she'd gone to law school. She she done all the right things but it wasn't it wasn't fulfilling to her she felt empty and she says that in her pursuit to excel she missed the signs you know the signs that were telling her that this is not what you want to do this is not what's going to fulfill you and she took the wrong road she realized that and she also realized that she was in love with someone she was deeply and delightfully in love with a guy whose forceful intellect and ambition could easily swallow hers self-awareness hey self-awareness and being aware of the space and the people around you i feel like it's very very necessary she was able to figure this out, you know, and realize that her partner, his ambitions, and could easily swallow hers, and she could get left behind, or what she wanted to do could easily get left behind. And so she needed, she, she, she says that she needed to anchor herself and find out what it was that she needed and what she wanted to do. It was following Suzanne's death and um, she lost her dad, I think, also shortly after that. And, you know, she she just couldn't continue with her own complacency. And she, but she was, you know, she knew she wasn't happy and she was confused about the next step, you know, which I totally related to him. Related to this phase that she was in, because I currently am in that phase. I talked about that in the first episode, where you know you're in a job and you're stuck and it's comfortable, you're getting good money, but you you're not you're not happy, you know. And I remember someone, one of the book club honeys mentioned this. I'm trying to remember if it was yeah, mellow, mellow. Mello mentioned this and she said, you know, a lot of our parents weren't fulfilled in their jobs, hey? They spent, they spent their lives 10, 15, 20 years in the same job, you know, in the same routine to be able to provide for us. That was their goal, to be able to provide and have steady pay, whereas priorities have shifted for our generation hey where you want you want a job that will fulfill you and just fulfill your purpose hey like you're doing something right it's not always possible for every single for each and every one of us but at least we're we're striving for that and and i was reflecting and i was like that's so weird that we're hearing our parents generation whereas Barack and Michelle are our parents' generation for some of us. For some of us, yeah. Yeah, for some of us. 
it was just it was just weird to think about it that way because she talks about how she she talked to her mom you know she was like i have a good salary i have a good job i have you know i have a subscription wine service health club membership student loans car payments and just general living expenses and you know how she just let that go in search of fulfillment she talked to her mother and her mother said to her um make the money first and worry about your happiness later you know she spent six months looking trying to empower herself you know without making any abrupt changes to see if she could maybe try and make it work you know as i mentioned this was around the time her dad had died and so after that it propelled her because also she had a partner who was also doing what he wanted to the best of his abilities and you know he understood his purpose and he understood what he wanted to do and so Barack was always, always helping her and helping her make these decisions and so he literally was for it and so she took a job at city hall which was literally half she was getting she was making half of what she had been making at sydney and austin but she she went there and she and she you know she went there to learn what she could do and you know find her passion in that and working in the community and making changes and stuff like visible changes because that's the place where you see it and even though it's barred by a lot of red tape a lot of bureaucracy but yeah she she went and she did that at the same time um you know barack had taken the, the bar exam he had proposed which is so weird because they had been talking about marriage but barack wasn't necessarily for marriage he just felt like if we can be together build a life together why we need to get the government involved huh are we trying to make a spectacle out of everything man why can't we just use a loan together huh why can't we just build this life together man we don't need to get married you know there's no need we can just be life partners and do this thing hey <laughs> yeah <laughs> but that was more or less of his argument hey Obviously, it had more basis of facts and, like, obviously, drawing from his experience of having his mother, who had been married to her dad and then got married again and divorced twice, and having, you know, just he just wanted stability but didn't want. Um, I, I'm guessing the forceful nature of marriage. These are also my views that I share. By the way, don't mind actually come at me for them so i can we, we can square up actually yes yes anyway yeah whereas michelle had grew up in a family a wholesome family where marriage was just basically the cement on the top okay maybe not cement but the icing on the top of just legitimizing that union and so you know on the day he proposed he brought up the whole marriage thing again 
and he just baited her with it <laughs> and at the end um you know she was speechless and he was like yeah that'll shut you up i remember <laughs> all of the honeys and i were just losing our mind we were like oh my god daddy 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 yeah we were just like oh okay okay sir okay yeah guys yeah i'm not saying go around talking to women like that but you have to find context context and when to do that okay i can't be giving advice right now about (laughs) i can't be giving relationship advice but anyway that's another that's another topic (laughs) that's another topic for another day that we will not discuss on this podcast um, yeah, you know, they'd been traveling to to Kenya where she got to visit um, Barack's paternal uh, paternal grandmother, just meet the rest of his family that was in Kenya, got married, and you know, she 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 mentions how she quickly realized, you know, as she had been living with Barack, how he wasn't uh, he was a loner. He was a loner and he needed his space to be able to do what he needed to do and from the early onset of their marriage it, it wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be textbook they didn't want to be textbook marriage they were going to have to make it work whereas you know Barack didn't have a problem with you know them spending time apart and stuff like that or just being in his by his by himself and so in early in their marriage um he took he took about five weeks he went away for five weeks he went to bali for five weeks to write um his book dreams of my father early in their marriage they got married october 1992 early 1993 he spent five weeks in the jungle writing his book left his newlywed wife is that is that the word guys he left his new wife anyway i don't know what it is i'm not interested in what the term is but (laughs) he left his wife and went to write this book you know and she was she 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 was beginning to understand that you know what this is who he is and so you know roll with the punches roll with the punches she didn't always roll with the punches sometimes she fought back okay sometimes she fought back but it was they understood each other hey they really really understood each other and it worked for them it really did it worked for them and so at the same time right i think it was in 1993 she got a new job as executive director of a organization called public allies it was a startup that was started in washington dc i believe in washington dc and um she helped start the chicago chapter of that organization basically that organization was helping young people find jobs and aligning them with their skills to the proper jobs in the private and public sector yeah and um she was doing that she was doing that she and I, and this is the part 
where I was like, hey, yo, wow. Remember how I mentioned she had gone to work in City Hall? And, um, you know, she took a very significant pay cut. And she mentioned how, you know, when she went to work at Public Allies, she, she had to be honest. Hey? Had to be very, very honest with them and be like, you know what? This is how much I need. If you're not willing to meet me with the money that I need, I got bills to pay. I got, you know, I got bills to pay. I got mouth to feed. Well, she didn't have mouth to feed. It was just her and her husband at the time. And, you know, she had her student loans. She had, I think, car payment as well. She was very, very honest with them. And she was like, this is what I need. And they went and found funding, you know. And they were able to help her come aboard she was like this is the money i need if you don't have it i'm not coming on board and they went out got the money and she was able to get the job i was like wow 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 she was very assertive i mentioned how she was just so assertive from a young age and that just she grew bolder in her assertiveness as she grew older I was just like that is so admirable because I think and I always read articles that say a lot of women don't ask don't ask for the right compensation that they that they should be getting hey and so we are usually underpaid also there is the whole sexism thing but we have to be assertive and saying you know what this is what i need this is what you're gonna pay me if you're not gonna pay me this then keep your job keep your job i don't need it you know and i was like yo michelle okay sis okay sis around this time barack obama starts thinking about getting into politics so he goes into um, state legislature. So he was in, uh, yeah, he was in state legislature in the state of Illinois, and it became difficult for them because at the same time they were trying to have a child, they were trying to get pregnant, and so it became a bit difficult for them because he was away in Springfield, she was in Chicago, he was in Springfield because I think that's where the Senate met. And he was there a couple of times a week. Um, she had difficulty pre- getting pregnant. She had had a miscarriage. They had to go through IMF, IVF, in vitro fertilization, which is how they managed to have their first daughter, Malia, in 1998. Um, you know, Barack was getting into politics, being attacked by his opponents, being dragged. He was I might be biased for being black and being ambitious. I'm joking. But yeah, they were basically just attacking his character, you know. I think um, I don't want to go too much into into Barack's politics and his campaigning, but it's gonna be necessary as I talk about um, when he was campaigning for 2000 in the 2008 presidential elections um it's necessary there because of the part that michelle played in that and we will talk about that when we get there but i didn't want to heavily focus on barack barack has books out there he has another book that's going to be coming out i'm not sure if it's this year or next year 
but he has a book that's coming out and it's probably also going to touch on that this is about michelle lavon robinson obama so again it was also one of those things that i felt like okay fine i understand that yeah you guys are out here living your best life together you know making you know living this life but sometimes it just felt like it was heavily centered around barack that was just my opinion about that but it, it it's necessary to understanding the story and our life together in and around the same time when they were having their kids she got a job with the university of chicago medical center as the executive director of um, community affairs she had grown up in basically the way she says it is the where where the university of chicago is located is in the south side but you know they passed she passed it every day but it didn't feel attainable to her and so part of her job was making the community around the university just feel included in or make it feel attainable just bridging that gap between them and because of her father who hadn't been able to afford necessarily the right medication or health care to treat his ms and even other black people in the community who have basically um illnesses that are treatable you know diabetes that's what she says diabetes heart disease and stuff like that that if you take medication over time they can they are you can live with them and so that was her main thing bridging that gap especially when it came to medicine and accessibility to medicine um which she was in charge of at um the university of the university of chicago medical center and we talked about this at book club we honestly are of the opinion that with or without barack obama with or without barack obama's fame or yeah with or without barack obama's fame we were definitely going to know michelle obama because of the line of the work that she was doing and the type of work that she was doing you know i feel like she was going to be one of those women who were featured or who were featured in like black girl rocks you know like for community achievement and you know helping your achievement and stuff like that you were definitely going to know her name she was going to be her you know not necessarily attached to barack but you were definitely going to know her that was uh, <laughs> that's just literally what I feel like like that was our humble opinion on that you know and then comes another part which was which I, I, I on Sunday I didn't want to agree with when we met with the book club but and then I was reviewing my notes trying to prepare for this podcast and I came across this and she said they'd made the decision to let Barack's career proceed as it as it had to allow him the freedom to pursue and chase his dreams
to yeah let me read it again they'd made a decision to let Barak's career proceed as it had to allow him the freedom to pursue and chase his dreams So let me go back to what the discussion was at the book club. And so reading that, it was like Michelle retreated. She retreated. She dialed herself down to allow her husband to propel into this, into who he is and who we know him to be. And For me, oh my gosh, for me, I didn't, I think when we were having the conversation on, uh, during the book club discussion, I didn't want to, I didn't want to see that, and I didn't, part of me knew it was true, but also didn't want to believe it, so as I was reading my notes preparing, it was like, okay, yeah, she did, she did, and I won't lie, you know, you know it, but it's still disappointing you know it's disappointing um disappointing because let me see if i can get the words to put it together disappointing because i've already mentioned about she was a high achiever she was very assertive she went after what she wanted so I didn't see and she even she she was self-aware and even aware of Barack and his ambition that she knew from early in their relationship that she had to anchor herself she had to find what would work for her so that his ambition and his goals and his career doesn't shadow hers you know and so from that to this it was yeah to me it was disappointing because you know you can do it all women can do it all you know you can you will she did but context context is very very necessary it hit me in as much as I was disappointed because the next section she was basically talking about how she's a mother of two young girls and she wanted to be present while still you know being able to work in her job that she also equally loved and so she she even mentioned how she numbed herself you know stepping back in moments where she would usually step up you know and she was aware of what she she could have followed through on you know in she was aware of what could have made her in her career even you know bigger or larger or greater and like again context hey context she had a husband who was in politics and was not always home and she had two little girls she had a job already mentioned that and so you know obviously if her career advanced even greater she would be leaving her kids at home 
more and then her kids would have two parents who weren't always as present you know context context i would keep saying that context of her life yeah and so around 2004 barack obama decided to campaign for senate and he gave the keynote address at the 2004 democratic national convention and that is when barack obama grew in popularity that's when everybody knew his name who he was what he was doing and all of that you know he became popular it was on newspapers people started calling him the next black president that's basically where it began the praises came up his book dreams of my father started selling even more it became um it, it ended up on the new york times bestseller list you know at the same time um he went on won the won the senate election and became senator of illinois and so he moved to DC but Michelle had to stay behind she had a job she had kids he moved there alone he got an apartment and so she tells a story about how one of the senator's wives called her she said Mrs. Obama Mrs. Obama I would like to invite you into this into into a club where it was basically made up of um, made up of um, other senator's wives and she was just like oh yeah by the way i'm not moving to dc you know and this woman made her feel bad like she she made her feel bad for not being there she made her be she made her feel like there's only one way to do this you know to be a wife to be a senator's wife you need to be here or be square you know you know, be or be square. And it's when she was when I was reading that page, you could feel her wrath. Cause I felt it too. Because it's a whole thing of expecting women to drop everything when their husbands suddenly become, you know, these these people like I didn't ask him to do that I didn't send him there he could go okay let him go yes we are married but that's what he wants okay I still have a life why do why do I need to drop everything to be at his side and be like his the, what does she say the missus defined by her mister and she says that she had been Mrs. Obama for 12 years but all of a sudden it meant something completely different she 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 couldn't drop everything and be there with him you know she couldn't she had her own life she got bills to pay she got children to raise she had family behind in chicago she didn't ask for that but they were making it work and i felt her rage you know and i felt it like so much It was, yeah, I was just like, I was like, I see you. I get it. Hey, I get, I get why you're angry. I really do get why you're angry. And, um, at this time it was, he, 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 and I stated he had, um, he had been in, he was in the Senate now. And so obviously being in the Senate and now he moved to DC, he was, 
their 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 relationship became strained hey um you know she was always she was already she already had a problem with his punctuality he was never on time for anything he would be on the way back from meetings get distracted um come later than she was expecting him to be there which is frustrating i get it as someone <laughs> listen i get it because I'm usually let me not lie. I'm I'm always tardy. I'm always tardy. But when I make it on time for something, I hate waiting. And so yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a doozy. That's just who I am. <laughs> and so I, I get it why she was like frustrated by his punctuality and all that then. But that that issue started you know that's they usually started growing and they they were repetitive now and so you know they decided to go to therapy which i think is i think it, it was necessary for them because she was getting strained a lot because he had two jobs he was in the senate he was still teaching he was still lecturing at the university of chicago on law and racism and there was a lot going on and you know the issues were getting worse and one of the things that was really, really worse was the punctuality thing, you know, because he would be say he would say he's on his way, but he would get distracted, come home like three hours later, and she'd kept the kids up for him so that they could see their dad before they went to bed. And she just realized that you know what, it wasn't going to work. It wasn't going to work, and that was one of the things that they figured out in therapy, along with the fact that she couldn't depend on happiness or for him to to make her happy you know and it's you know you like you, another person can't make you happy you make you happy you know and i was just like okay 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 you make you happy you know you make you happy you can't depend on another person for your happiness it was one of the issues that they had discussed while in therapy and on the issue of punctuality she she just was like you know what i'm no longer keeping the kids up late i am sticking them to a schedule and you're gonna stick to the schedule this is when we're gonna have dinner this is when we're gonna have um, bath time this is when we're gonna go read and you know we're gonna stick to our schedule and she put the responsibility on barack that he was either gonna make it or he wasn't gonna make it because she this is what she said this is what the passage says she says she wanted the girls to grow up strong and centered and unaccommodating to any form of old school patriarchy she didn't want them to ever believe that life began when the man of the house arrived at home they didn't wait for him it was his time it was for it was for him to catch up with them they were not gonna wait for him anymore he had to catch up with them like yes michelle put your foot down put your left foot down michelle put your left foot down i was like yes 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 i i I was just like i was reading that part i was like you go girl you go girl it was necessary it was very necessary very necessary and so after that it was 
2007 and there had already been chatter or people had already been asking if Barack Obama was going to be running for president in 2008. Starting to the conversations that were starting, he had been um, diverting them, saying it's a family decision, which essentially meant that if Michelle says yes, then he'll run. They hadn't actually had the conversation. And, you know, she she says, you know what, if being in state legislature and being senator already took away my husband, what about presidency? And she'd seen the ugly side of politics and the way her husband had been attacked for his character and all of that. And how people were just, just generally mean towards him. And it's politics, it's dirty, you know, it's, it's dirty, it's really, really dirty. And they decided that, you know, he was going to run for, he was going to run for presidency. And when he did, you know, Michelle was out there too. He was talking to people because the way politics is, you have to mobilize the people. You have to mobilize the people in the, in the furthest corner, corners. And that's how you get numbers. And they were out in, like, I think Iowa, she said. They were out in Iowa. She was talking to people. Barack was talking to people. You know, telling her story. Telling her American story of her grandparents. And that she was the great-great-granddaughter of slaves. And where she grew up on the south side of Chicago. Telling her story. That was being it's, it's It's her story. And people related to that. And it mobilized people more and more. And so they mentioned how you know the wives or partners of people who are running for presidency aren't as heavily involved as she was you know she was out there pulling her own numbers and people came out to listen to her and hear what she had to say and she was very very instrumental to Barack's campaign in my opinion just reading from her perspective of this campaign and all that she had to do you know she was flying to Iowa or any other place where she needed to be helping Barack mobilize and flying back to Chicago to be with her daughters she had to scale back her work that year as Barack was campaigning and you know she just had to she was out there she was out there just campaigning with her man and she she didn't she 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 wasn't she didn't she didn't like politics she had grown up with um santita jackson Um, i hope i'm saying that right santita jackson who was the daughter of the reverend jesse jackson and um when they were in high school jesse jackson had run for had placed his bid to run for presidency of the United States under the Democratic banner. Yeah, yeah, he had run under the Democratic Party. Yes, yes. And you know, she had seen how they had gone through that, and like, she used to go with them to rallies and see, like, just see the whole. She just saw it through her friend's eyes, and she really didn't like it. But here she was doing it. And the thing is, she was like, she doesn't, she didn't want to be the person that stopped Barack from achieving his dreams you know she already hadn't been spending enough time with 
her husband and her fam and you know the family as a whole together or you know she was talking about her kids but she she didn't want to be selfish and stop Barack from his purpose and so she just thought you know what let me let him let him run and he'll lose she honestly didn't think he was going to win she really didn't hey she really didn't and um he and you know she was out there and there was one point where she had gone to give a speech and someone had taken her speech and cut and paste cut and paste you know those those videos that they do on the internet where you, where you make someone out to say that to say something that that is completely out of context and wasn't what they were saying someone did that after she had given one of her soapbox um, speeches and so totally distorted her message called her anti-american and all of that which was very very harmful to the campaign and so they started assessing what she was saying and her friends played back one of the videos of her speeches and um and you know they muted the the, the the audio and she was looking at herself her mannerisms her body language her facial expressions and it was you know the way she said it she was just like why didn't you tell me and the truth of the matter is no one had noticed because she wasn't the one running for office it was Barack so all of the resources were geared toward Barack and so now she started she wasn't necessarily writing her speeches down and you know and stuff so she was just basically speaking from the heart it was loose it wasn't it was the same story she would adjust here and there just to make it relevant to the spaces that she was in so they started giving her the right tools to allow her to be able to you know have a more a more holistic speech and a more put something more put together hey and so uh, she was invited to speak at the 2008 Democratic National Convention and that that went really really well for her you know when i was watching you know, when i was when i got to the part where they were talking about um the 2008 election i obviously i remember i remember the night he won um Barack Obama won the election and uh, I've been going back yeah I've been going back and watching those speeches and stuff like that I was such a nerd <laughs> yes I've just been going back and watching back those speeches I haven't watched her 2008 speech at the National Democratic Convention I watched the one she did in 2016 no 20 yeah in 2016 that one I remember watching but I didn't watch the original one in 2018 I mean, two, 2008, sorry. Two, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, and you know, you know, we know what happened and Barack Obama won the election in 2008 and she tells a very, very funny story about like leading towards, you know, the election, you know, as they were heading towards the election, Barack was getting even more and more popular and so they started getting secret service detail and you know she was getting popular soon um she and the kids were getting secret service detail you know 
and there was a time they had been campaigning and it was the 4th of July which also happens to be Malia's birthday and so they were celebrating out there campaigning um, a few of Malia's friends were a few of her cousins were around and some other kids of like some campaign staffers and you know they had a little private um, party right after the campaign with everyone else and you know they had balloons and stuff like that even some of the secret service people were there they got her they got her presents and stuff and you know and they felt like they had failed their daughter you know and Malia came up to them and she was like this is the best party ever you know and I was just like that is so cute because from a child's perspective they're just surrounded by love and like that's basically what she said you know she was she was surrounded by love and she didn't recognize like the logistics of it all she just saw her friends and her family and her cousins and that was really all that mattered to her okay I thought that was really really cute so back to the story they had already gotten secret service detail pretty early on it just got worse when Obama got elected. So the night he got elected, they were going to the convention center, I believe. And now he was president-elect. So they're driving there. It's um, the Obama family, just the nuclear family, four of them. And so apparently Sasha looks out of the window and she says, Daddy, I don't think people are coming to your celebration because there was no one on the street and so they laugh but then michelle says then she realized that their lives were about to change because this meant that barack was now the next president of the united states and so the secret service had cleared out the street for security reasons and i'm telling you it only got worse and they were when they went on stage and she you know because they were coming from the other side and she mentions how you could see the ballistic bulletproof glass on the stage that you normally can't see unless you look really really well because it's transparent and she was like it's these small things started clicking to her and so you know she she mentions how in becoming more becoming more is basically the last part of the book and she talks about um you know how being a first lady essentially and she says you know she had gone to dc to go look for a school for for the kids and just interviews and see which schools the kids could go to and so she also had secret service detail and so someone was she had gone to meet um barack at the airport and she says the secret service agent always always called me ma'am this way ma'am please step back ma'am and ma'am your car will be here shortly and she's like who's ma'am who's ma'am she's like who's ma'am to her like ma'am is an old lady (laughs) what did she say an old lady with um proper purse good posture and sensible shoes and shoes sensible shoes sorry and she's like, but I was ma'am. Ma'am was me. And so she's there standing with um, her secret service person who, secret service, secret service 
person, her security person, can we call him that? Yeah, one of the people from the Secret Service, essentially. And um, he says to her, ma'am, your life is about to change forever. Because they're waiting for Black to arrive at the airport, right? And he says to her, ma'am, your life is about to change forever. And she looks at him and they watch. And then the convoy, the presidential convoy, guys. There is police cars, motorcycles, black SUVs, two armored limousines with American flags mounted on their hoods, a hazmat mitigation truck, a counter-assault team riding with machine guns visible, an ambulance, a signals truck equipped to detect incoming projectiles, several passenger vans, and another group of police escort. This was the presidential motorcade. Basically, this means that any time Barack Obama or the president is traveling, this is the motorcade. This is at least, I don't even think it's 20, it's probably like 30 cars. Because there's just, it's, it's too much. Like, you're doing too much, hey? You're doing too much. And, like, that's how he traveled every single day of his presidency. And it got real fast, hey? It got really, really real fast. Because by the time the kids, Sasha and Maria started school, this is how he traveled, you know, and they, he couldn't take his kids to the first day of school because it was going to be too much attention. And every single thing that they did as the first family had to be cleared with the Secret Service. Imagine going from having to seek authority from your parents to having to seek authority from like your security, hey? Like going anywhere if they wanted, to, if they were going to make a trip maybe to a medical center. It had to be planned in advance. Routes had to be planned. Someone had to estimate the time. They had to take the time. Um, they had to take the route and estimate the time that it would take for them to get there and get back. Security factors. And I was like, it's intriguing. It's intriguing. I love it. I really, really do love it. But it's tedious. Like, they couldn't go outside of the White House without alerting security. They couldn't open windows without opening a window with a security threat like you can't be in your house and you're like oh it's hot let me open it no no every single thing that they did they needed security sasha and malia had security when they went to school they had agents who stood outside of their classes who followed them everywhere imagine being that young and having like <laughs> having security like what i also wouldn't i wouldn't handle no, I'm lying. I would I would be asking people to swear up every day. <laughs> I would literally be talking so much shit and asking people to swear up every single day. <laughs> I would be problematic, hey? I would I would be problematic. I would have been problematic. I would have just been like, yo, okay, maybe, yeah, let me I would have been a problem. But yeah, they had to basically get security clearance for anything if Sasha or Malia wanted to go out for ice cream with the other kids they had to be cleared not even through their parents they had to be cleared through security if they were able to do that and it was and you know Michelle talks about how she wanted to make this very comfortable for them but it wasn't possible hey 
everything you wanted. And the, it was just it was just a lot here. And being in the White House that like significantly changed. Significantly. Um, you know, you know, she's she mentioned how being the first lady isn't necessarily a job, but it's a job nonetheless. And so she had to do it, but she had to make it her own. And, you know, she had to fight for, you know, she had the active programs forcing, I mean, trying to get kids to eat healthy and just forcing, um, you know, working with the West Wing because she was in the East Wing um, to get some certain changes to build into law and all of that. And, you know, they were very, very supportive of each other. And she mentions how every single night she would go to bed both she and Barack would get dockets. Well, a docket each, a folder each. I'm just going to call them dockets so you understand how big Barack's was. Well, Barack's was a docket. Hers was a smaller docket with a smaller file. And so they had they had to go through these every single night before they went to bed. Every single night. I was just like, yo, it's too much, hey? It's too much. Like, you're really leading the, your country leading the free world and then on top of that before you sleep you must read some more when do you even read a book when when do you even just have a moment to yourself when and you know she 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 talks about you know using how they had they were very very aware that they were the first black first family no, he was the first black president. She was the first black first lady. And so people were rooting for them to fail. And in Barack's first term, the Republican Party's sole mission was to make sure that he didn't get a second term. They would vote against anything that he proposed in the House of... Is it the House of Representatives? Or... American politics. I don't know in the house they would vote against everything just to make sure that he failed even if it they didn't care about the future that's basically what she was saying and you know people like the current president started spewing hate speech and saying how just trying to discredit his birth certificate and where he was born where he was born sorry and um, she she mentions how you know People don't realize that that words have effects and they have to take responsibility for that because it spewed a lot of hate speech and a lot of people believed and a lot of people have ate that up. And so from that hate speech or that conversation or whatever he had sparked, people started believing that and someone tried someone tried it someone had taken a semi-automatic rifle and aimed it at the Truman balcony where they used to go out and have tea and um started shooting luckily ballistic glass bulletproof bombproof glass was there and she said in the book she said she would never forgive Donald Trump for that because he actually she put her whole family in danger and she would never forgive she would never ever 
ever forgive him for that because she would go out there every day because that glass had to get made and replaced obviously the integrity of the glass was already compromised if a, if a bullet was already lodged there that they already removed but it had to be replaced she said she was there for weeks because the glass was being manufactured and she had to look at that every single day and you know in in this last chapter of the book you know she talks about the experience and how they tried to make it home homely and more accessible in, in the white house you know this book for me was was very 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 relatable minus the first lady part but it was very relatable i i saw parts of myself in this book in in the way she was explaining herself even the way she wrote this book it was very very well written i honestly would recommend this book because it gives you great insight into who she is and you know all the challenges that they faced to get to being flotus and potus hey and it wasn't an easy journey for them there was a lot of strain in their relationship it was nonetheless they have a beautiful relationship but you know it's it's a journey hey it's a journey it was such a well-written book yes there were times where i was mad there were times where i cried i cried i went through all the emotions in this book and it was so amazing and it was so worth it to read about this woman who for eight years so many people made speculations about and she got the platform she had the time to sit and write her story and her story is one that needs to be read it needs to be heard it needs to be read and i love it i love it because she was the first black first lady of you know of the united states she she's already set apart she has two ivy league degrees she's that girl you know she's auntie shell she had all of that she had a career she but she lived a full life i think that's what i appreciate about it and as much as she she ended up giving up her career becoming first lady and everything else that happened in her life when she made the decision to stop being you know routine and stop being monotonous in her life it opened her up to so many greater opportunities in life and because of her husband and his job and i don't think that's an experience that she would be willing to give up for everything she was the first black first lady and she did it she took it and she made it her story i honestly i've I've admired her from afar but i was reading the story and i remember we were talking at the book club how we felt so protective of like sasha and malia and how even going back to watch these speeches is like you have 
have it's like you have insight of what was going on behind the scenes and it is it's amazing it is amazing i found you know some of the challenges that i have had like I, i've already mentioned that that i really really enjoyed that i saw in her and you know you see someone who's like michelle obama going through things that you're going through right now or she went through them and she overcame you know and i think you know she's 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 still becoming she is still becoming and towards the end of the book she says that you know becoming let me look further page For me, becoming isn't about arriving somewhere or achieving a certain aim. I see it instead as a forward motion, a means of evolving, a way to reach continuously to continuously towards a better self. The journey doesn't end. I became a mother, but I still have to a lot to learn from and to give my children. I became a wife, but I continue to adapt to to adapt and to be humbled by what it means to truly love and make a life for another person i have become by certain measures a person of power and yet there are moments still when i feel insecure or unheard it's a process steps along a path becoming requires equal parts patience and rigor becoming is never giving up on the idea that there's more growing to be done when i read that i was like okay fine it's also knowing that to me that i don't have to have it all figured out at 25 <laughs> it's annoying because i don't know where my next step is and i'm just going through the motions just like she did but yeah it's it's comforting hey it's comforting knowing that so that's my take on the coming guys this has been probably the longest episode ever probably is going to be the longest episode this year <laughs> unless i pick up another book that just needs to be unpacked but uh, this book was amazing i would i would just i would encourage anyone and everyone to read this book it was so very relatable it's like a warm hug it's like Michelle Obama really is my aunt that I can go and vent to in my head, okay? In my head she is. So, thank you so much for tuning in to this very very long episode. If you're hearing my voice at this point and you've followed all the way through, thank you so much for tuning in and I really do hope you all enjoy this episode. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram and Twitter at @duluntumetse give me feedback and let me know what you think about this episode guys and what your thoughts are on the book if you've read it if you're looking to read it hey do let me know please enjoy your week and i will see you and well i won't see you but you'll get a new episode in two weeks thank you